Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. Hello, welcome to episode one of The Blind Side in this exclusively podcast format. The show started on Mushroom FM, who was a sponsor of this podcast. And you'll hear Mushroom FM promos from time to time. And it was a daily show, and for various reasons of logistics and also consumption, we decided to take this to a weekly podcast. We found that a lot more people were listening to the extracts that we were putting up on the podcast rather than listening on Mushroom FM, probably because it's just convenient to download the thing when you want to download it and skim through it, speed it up and slow it down. And so it's always good to give the people what they want, isn't it? Unless it's too many carbs. You don't want to give the people too many carbs, I find. Harm can come to you in that way. So this is The Blind Side. We hope in this format with a weekly podcast to be here for some time to come. And it would be great to get your feedback. The first thing I'd like to request is that you spread the word. You know, it's a new podcast and there are gazillions of podcasts out there. So if you think we have something that's worth hearing and that's worth telling people about, please do spread the word. And you can tell people that they can subscribe by searching for The Blind Side in all of their podcast apps. Now, there may be one or two podcasts called that, I think, but you do see The Blind Side with Jonathan Mosen coming up when you do a search for this podcast. Feel the need to sound off? Share your thoughts about this week's show by email. Send an audio file or write it down and email theblindside at mosen.org. A couple of people to talk to on the podcast. In a moment, I'll be talking with Jackie Brown from the BCAB. For those not in the know, that's the British Computer Association of the Blind. And they've got an event coming up that we'll be talking about, and we'll look at the work of the BCAB. Even if you're not in Britain, don't skip this one necessarily, because it may give you some inspiration if you're looking to start some sort of computer group, a support group for other blind people where you are. They're very well established. They've been around a long time, actually, before many of us knew that computers existed, before some of us were even born. Uh, But they do a great job. And so we'll talk a little bit about the BCAB and what they do. And it will be interesting to hear how much support you feel you get where you are. For those of us who take to this technology, it can sometimes be hard to appreciate and, and people forget that it's a struggle for a lot of people. People find it difficult to use this stuff and there is this digital divide emerging where we have this opportunity but many people find it hard to grasp it because of technological complexity which is one of the reasons why Mosin Consulting was formed and of course Mosin Consulting is a sponsor of the Blindside podcast. We'll tell you more about that a little bit later. And then we will play the interview that first aired on Mushroom FM with Mary Schnackenberg here in New Zealand. Mary is a former president of the International Council on English Braille. She's still very much involved in the Braille scene. And we'll be talking with Mary about Braille, its current state. How's it doing in this technological age? Is there a case to be made that if you're good enough with your speech-based technology, you don't need Braille anymore. And why do people keep tampering with it? We'll ask those questions and more of Mary a little bit later in the podcast. But first, let's talk with BCAB's Jackie Brown. And I was reading about an event that they have coming up called the Tech a Break Weekend. Tech a Break. 
And when I first read this, I thought it sounds like my Scottish friend Gordon Luke, who works with me on Mushroom FM. But now it's tech a break. It's a pun, you see. And it's about people getting together and having a technology break for the weekend, which is kind of nice, isn't it? Because so often when you go away on a break, you get told to leave your technology alone. Put the phone away. You're supposed to be on holiday and all that sort of stuff. Well, I guess in this instance, they're encouraging you to get all your gadgets out and play with them. When you're on your break, Jackie Brown from the BCAB joins me now. Welcome to The Blind Side, Jackie. Thanks very much for asking me to come and speak to you, Jonathan. We've got an international audience here, so there will be some people who haven't heard about BCAB before. So tell us a little bit about the organisation and perhaps a bit of its history. Well, I have recently joined Tech A Break in the last year or so, um, And I've been doing their newsletter as the editor for about 18 months. And BCAB actually goes back to the 60s, I believe. And they are a small group of people um, as a board. They're a charity. And they've been going, as I say, from the 60s and trying to help uh, blind and visually impaired people with all their assistive tech. You know, of course, in those days, uh, it was very limited and then it went on to in the 80s it started to grow into the you know computer technology that we know and love today kind of yeah braille terminals and uh, voice synthesis so that's really how BCAB has grown over the years and has become more popular with a discussion list an email discussion list and of course in more recent years the tech a break event which is annual every october and they get together at a hotel for a weekends of seminars good fun a bit of social stuff um an agm and it's it's really good tell me about some of the speakers that you have at this coming tech a break weekend Well, myself and two other members of the board are going to be talking about Braille note takers because there is a real passion for Braille out there. Jonathan, you're obviously very passionate about Braille. Mm. I am as well. And lots of people want to know about the new Braille technology that's happening this year around the world. You know, we have the release of L Braille. We have the Braille note touch. We have the Orbit so there are lots of uh, things going on with Braille. It's almost like it's had a resurgence, and we thought it would be great to have a seminar on Braille note-takers this year. So uh, we're doing that. And we're also having a seminar from Microsoft. So they'll be telling us about their family of products. Somebody from Microsoft is coming to talk to us. So that'll be interesting to hear about Windows phones, narrator accessibility. I'm sure the uh, Windows anniversary um, well, that will all get discussed. And then somebody else is going to talk about uh, converting their vinyl record collection. I'm sure this is something else that would be right up your street yeah. Um, <laughs> it, yeah, into digital format and how they do it. So, you know, that's that's going to be one of the things I'm looking forward to hearing about as well. And then apart from that, we're having an exhibition this year, which um, has been tried before, but we're going to do it again this year to see um, if we can sort of, you know, get more and more people to come and attend. And we're going to have 10, about 10 of the most major companies 
um, coming to show their wares. And, and that would be really useful, I must say, because that means that some of us can get hands on technology that we, we might not see throughout the year. So that that'll be good as well. The vinyl collection thing is really intriguing and it's something that I got out of my system about 10 years ago. But these days, the technology is so much easier because you have these USB turntables that are specifically designed for digitization that you can just plug into your computer. And uh, when I did it, it was the old-fashioned analog way. So that'll be a fascinating presentation. Tell me about the skill levels that are expected at gatherings like this. Is it for the super geeky people or are there people with varying levels of familiarity and confidence with the computer who attend? Very much anybody who is interested or who has an interest in technology, who wants to learn it, who's either advanced or a complete novice or a new beginner. You know, it's BCAB is for everybody. Um, I think it used to, in fairness, have a little bit of a, a reputation of being a little bit of a kind of a stuffy mailing list because BCAB mailing list has been going for a long time. And I think people felt that if you subscribe to the email list, that um, it was perhaps for geeky people, somebody who, you know, would go on there and maybe want to ask a question. And I think maybe the emphasis seemed to be anyway, uh, that it, that it was quite, you know, for advanced users, but it actually isn't like that at all. You know, we try to help one another and just share information and that's really what Tekka Breaks about. People that want to come along to find out more advanced stuff can ask questions. And those that, you know, have something new that they want to learn, they can come as well. Everybody's welcome. And that's, that's the most important thing. It doesn't matter what your level of skill is, as long as you have an interest uh, and, you know, want to come along and enjoy it, really. What's the state, do you think, of mobile apps in the uk it seems to me that the uk is doing quite well with some of the key ones i know that the bbc seems to have a very strong commitment to accessibility they drop the ball every so often but they always seem to pick it up again are you fairly comfortable with the way that the major companies organizations institutions in the uk are embracing accessibility Yes, I think it's it's actually getting better. And I, I think more and more people, older people as well as younger people, are actually wanting to learn how to do certain things with mobile devices. And there are quite a few things. The RNIB is doing something called Online Today, where they've been given big lottery funding to have a project over a few years to try to get people onto uh, smart devices, you know, laptops and, uh, uh, you know, sort of mobile phones and tablets as well. And, and I think people are, are embracing the change very slowly. And it's a big change for people to get used to, the, the whole touchscreen phenomenon, if they've never used one before. But I think you'll see an increase in participation, don't you? Because as the current population ages, and we sometimes forget, especially on programs like this, that the majority of blind people are actually elderly. The newer generation of seniors are sort of more prepared to invest in and try and embrace technology that mitigates their situation than perhaps the previous generation of seniors were. I think that's very true. Um, at the moment, I'm actually helping a gentleman with his iPhone. Um, he's having a, a couple of issues trying to connect it to a Braille device and um, also use email on his phone. And he's 77. So, you know, I, th I think, you know, g good on people that, that want to try it and 
know um, have a go and I think I think people really do want to um, I think the I think it's the social media, Jonathan, that's doing it. I think that's that's pushing it. I think they're, you know, family, friends, they're all using Facebook. Everywhere you go, it's Facebook mainly and, and Twitter to a large extent, but particularly Facebook. Um, and, and, you know, when you hear a blind person, maybe an older person saying, oh, what, what's Facebook? And then, you know, their family and friends say, oh, well, you can put photos up there when we went on holiday and you can keep track of people you meet people that you used to know at school. And I think that everybody's getting bitten by this bug and, and want to actually join in. And I think that's that's why so many older people, if you like, want to, want to give it a go because they don't want to be left behind or left out. Am I right in saying that BCAB runs a magazine or a newsletter and that you're looking after that? I, I do, yes. I'm the editor. I've been the editor for well over a year now. And... Uh, it used to be three times a year, but now it's quarterly because, again, we're having so much content. I'm managing to get people to contribute, you know, write articles, and then I, I tidy them up. Um, the newsletter goes out in various formats to members, and it's a really good way of we, – we try to update the website as well uh, to keep – you know, articles flowing and to keep news going on there and stuff. And it and it's really a good way for people to refer back to stuff if you've got articles coming in. So that's something I really enjoy as part of the writing sort of skills I have and, and like to use. And I know BCAB maintains a Twitter account, and I know this because every so often I get retweeted by BCAB, and actually so does Mushroom FM. So you, there's, a, there's a social media presence on, on, on Twitter as well. That's right. Yeah, we, we take it in terms of we have a day. Some of us will have a day each a week. My day is a Wednesday, for example, and I I tweet and retweet uh, information and I, I often see you. And, and if there's something I think that's going to be really interesting to retweet, then I do. So that's that's a also something that has changed in BCAB over the last couple of years we've got a Twitter account there is a Facebook account uh, which somebody else looks after I don't know how active that is but um, you know it is available so it's really great the amount of ways that people can keep in touch with other people now do you accept international applications or is this very much uh, UK centric Oh, no, yeah, absolutely. We accept uh, applications from anyone anywhere around the world. The more, the merrier. We don't have a huge membership. Um, it's about 400 members, believe it or not. Um, it's a pity that it isn't more. So, you know, if anybody is out there and they want to, to join BCAV and find out what we are and what we do, because we have various projects. We have a helpline every month for people to, to call in. Um, and, you know, we, tr we try to have various projects on the go. Uh, we're, we're actually compiling a, a training, training list at the moment um, where on the website people will be able to, to go in and look for a trainer if they're looking for somebody to help them with their computer. And, you know, th there are all sorts of things going on that the board want to take the association forward um, to meet the demand that is out there for people to want to learn. Very good. So just in recapping then, tell us about where Tech A Break is taking place and how people can find out more information and potentially register for that if they're in the UK. Okay, Tech A Break this year is being held, as it has been the last few years, at the Crew Arms Hotel in Crewe, and that's in Cheshire. 
And if anybody is interested in joining us for the whole weekend or one of the days, uh, there are several packages that you can choose from. The best place to head to is the BCAB website, which is www.bcab.org.uk. And full details of the Tech A Break program um, are on the on the page there. And you can also book online as well. Genius. Well, you guys do some great work, and I've enjoyed interacting with people from BCAB over the years. I've uh, had a lot of chats with Mike Townsend. I presume he's still around yes and yeah yes uh, yes indeed yeah yeah so so that's that's great thank you so much for coming on the program and i hope that we'll keep in touch in the future as you uh, do more interesting things at bcab thank you very much for asking me jonathan the blind side podcast is brought to you in part by mushroom fm on the web at www.mushroomfm.com now mushroom fm has been around a while now on and off it began in april in 2010 took a break at the end of 2013 and came back last year and is going stronger than ever. Mushroom FM is actually refocusing, so I wanted to reintroduce it to you because it is a bit of a different station these days. In the past, Mushroom FM has really encouraged everybody to join us and do whatever kind of radio they like. In this era where there is so much radio out there and you've got choices like Spotify and Apple Music, we took the decision that it's important for us to specialize in a certain area, And there will be specialty shows, but for the most part, we think it's important that when you tune in, you know roughly the kind of thing that you're going to hear. So as of Monday, the 15th of August, Mushroom FM is the station that plays four decades of magic mushroom memories. What that means is that you'll hear music from the 1950s through the 1980s, for the most part, on Mushroom FM. We're trying to create the 50s through 80s atmosphere, not just through music, but also we'll play some vintage ads right through that period. So there are lots of great ads in those four decades that will bring back the memories. Because if you were around then, the ads that were played on the radio really did form a significant part of the cultural experience just as much as the music did. We're also giving you the opportunity to influence what we play when there is no DJ taking care of that for you with a web-based request system. So you can't quite give a song the thumbs down or the thumbs up as you can in certain on-demand music services, but you can go onto the Mushroom FM website when there's no DJ around and interrogate Mushroom FM's music library. You can search for a song or an artist, there's a bunch of radio buttons that come up, and you can actually choose a song that you want to hear and add it to the queue. All you have to do then is stay listening, because other people will be requesting things too, but eventually your song will be played. It's a really ingenious system, and it just adds to the whole fun, interactive nature of the home of the fun guys, Mushroom FM. So if music from the 50s to the 80s is your thing, give the new look, Mushroom FM, a try as of August the 15th on the web at www.mushroomfm.com. It's time to hear from this week's featured guest on The Blind Side. For years, the demise of Braille has often been predicted, and yet technology such as embosses and refreshable Braille displays means that Braille is more abundant than ever, and it's very much alive. 
In May, the International Council on English Braille convened in Baltimore for its 6th General Assembly, and it was streamed for those who wished to listen in. Mary Schnackenberg is a past president of the ICEB and has been working in various capacities to advance the availability and usefulness of Braille for decades. I'm proud to say that she is a fellow New Zealander. Mary, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for being on the programme. Thank you, Jonathan. What does the International Council on English Braille do and why is it needed? It's really a standard-setting body for English language Braille, for Braille used in the English language. And it's been going since 1991. It's evolved over time. Those of you who have any interest in the history of Braille will know there's been wars of the dots, there's been all sorts of arguments in the United States, Canada, Britain, Australia, New Zealand, and of course that's five of the countries. We have Ireland, South Africa and Nigeria. So there are eight of us. Um, There was a real key conference in 1982 in Washington, D.C., where people looked at um, Braille and the development of Braille. And really, Braille is the nearest equivalent we have to print. So Braille needs, the code needs to keep up with unbelievably massive changes in the world of print. Uh, And part of Braille, of course, is tactile graphics. And so the Braille code needs to be able to support tactile graphics appropriately. It has to support maths, science, engineering, um, technology, all of those really important uh, geography, all the really important literacy education activities. It needs to be easy to produce, easy to learn, easy to read, um, Altogether, it's got to support users in the way that print supports sighted people. People have been concerned for years about the number of Braille readers. Has the number of Braille readers dropped over the decades? And how would you assess it now in terms of the health of Braille? The, the number of Braille readers in terms of falling in Britain and the United States uh, in, in developing countries, in developed countries, the numbers of Braille readers are dropping, but there are a range of reasons for that. One of them relates to the onset of blindness for older people. That onset of blindness uh, is occurring later in life when our seniors tend to have um, more difficulties mastering anything more health problems and so it's more of a challenge because people are losing their sight in their 70s and 80s rather than in their 60s and 70s. It's more of a challenge for that group of people to learn Braille so those numbers are falling off a bit at that end but the numbers in the education system in developed countries um, should not be falling off because literacy through Braille is as important today as it ever was. The difficulty is to make sure that governments appreciate that and provide adequate funding for the proper teachers, um, for the, the instruction of teachers so that they can teach Braille to our young kids. And there is this um, nonsense that is out there that says, 
well, because of speech technology, therefore you don't have to learn Braille. And if somebody said to a sighted person, a picture is worth a thousand words, so you don't need those flat hieroglyphs anymore, um, well, you might even be considered for perhaps psychiatric attention. Um, And so we, we really need people to understand that blind people, despite speech, need access to the written word under their fingers, Um, that our low vision youngsters need to understand that their vision may perhaps deteriorate and they may need to at least respect the fact that if their vision deteriorates, then they will need to learn Braille because that will keep them attached to literacy. And really, it's a fundamental understanding of literacy. It's quite interesting in the um, developing countries, the sense that I have is that developing countries simply don't have the money for the expensive technologies. And so hand frames and Braille, so long as there is a teacher to teach it, um, the hand frames and, and, and Braille itself is likely to survive um, even perhaps more strongly in the developing countries um, in the in the meantime, at least, um, so we have we are learning from each other. Uh, the developing countries are reminding us of the incredible importance of literacy through Braille, and the developed countries had better not forget that lesson. There is a view expressed from time to time that ideology is triumphing over outcome, and that you have a lot of people who decide this particular child doesn't need Braille because these days it's not common for blind kids to be concentrated in one place. So resources are very scattered and they're usually very inadequate. And it seems as if sometimes the education system is looking for a reason not to teach a child Braille. Is that a fair assessment, do you think? It is, but that varies very considerably across countries. And I wouldn't want to generalise, but I imagine it varies right across the United States too. There are um, some really informed places and I have to say with huge pride that New Zealand is is one of them. We have um, an organisation called the Blind and Low Vision Education Network, NZ, BLENDS for short. Now this is effectively a school for um, preschool and grade school uh, students that takes our students right through to the end of high school and the the key thing about blends is that parents and teachers offer choice the choice that they offer is that they are able to support a student to live in their local area and go to their local school from time to time the student may need to attend immersion courses at the headquarters of Blends, which is in South Auckland here um, in, in New Zealand, or they may attend courses at their local resource uh, vision centre, um, or they may even just step out of the classroom from a, for a little while in the school. So there's choice, and those choices are described and written down in the individual, individual educational plan for each youngster. Now, there is room for error, there's room for mistake, that's because of humans, but um, there's also room for our teachers, because the resource teacher's vision all work for blends, 
they may physically be located all across New Zealand, but they have professional development opportunity, they have peer support as teachers, they are able to um, gain best practice, they're um, documenting all their pedagogy um, in terms of everything from how the different techniques to use for teaching Braille to the the youngest students through to our um, high school students who may have been print readers and have lost their print reading ability. How do you support those kids at a really tricky time in their transition from um, childhood to adulthood? Um, And of course, how best to teach tactile graphics. I've had some wonderful lessons in tactile graphics. I personally loathe the things. And what I've learned is that if you're taught uh, tactile graphics appropriately at the right time, in the right way, by by the right skills, and if you believe that you can learn those skills, then you can conquer and master tactile graphics. And I got a really firm reminder of that while I was in the States at the latest conference watching two very good blind friends of mine um, tackle a 3D map of the United States that was showing um, population um, density by state. And there are 49 um, American-based states on the American continent. And they were looking at this map, which wasn't hugely big. It was perhaps an A4 um, A4 size. And they could identify the states without a single Braille label. Now, that's because they they were both incredibly good at tactile graphics. They knew their American geography backwards. And they were able to look and think, oh, yes, that's right, this state would have the most dense population. And because it was a 3D map, the, um, the structures on the map, the taller the structure, uh, the denser the population. And it was such an, uh, a, a lesson for me to remind me that learning how to read tactile graphics properly, learning how to be able even to sketch um, maps of your country um, is key. And, and it's not just about maps, it's just about understanding 2D, 3D, and we've got to make sure that our, our youngsters can grow up properly equipped um, and enter into the workforce with all the equipment, all the intellectual equipment, because um, I belong to the days of before cassette recorders, um, when we had old Stainsby Braille machines and then the Perkins and the mechanical typewriters, and in today's world, um, it is so full of the technology that should allow you, if you gain a proper education, should allow you to gain a really good, um, well-paid job. Um, so we need to make sure that that education is as good as it can be. When you look at an era like today's where you can explore maps via an iPhone or an iPad and really get a an understanding of the way that streets are laid out, for example, and actually I personally find that much more easy to deal with than those Braille uh, diagrams that you were talking about, and I'm sure that's me rather than the diagrams or the, the lack of training I've received. But then you also look at screen readers that are able to provide very detailed information about the way that a document is looking, the way things are formatted, the fonts that are being used, any extraneous spaces... It, it, it is possible, is it not, for somebody to be a fully functioning, effective adult in a professional environment who does not know a dot of Braille? 
don't understand how that could really truly occur because what matters to me is um, that you are able to check the spelling of things on the fly um, that's just one simple example I am stunned by the number of variant spellings of the woman's name Linda or even Lynn for short and if you weren't aware that um, if, if you're not triggered to query the speech how would you know the number of times I've dropped my hand and glanced at something and thought oh my goodness I was just about to drop a clanger um, and sometimes the speech actually doesn't pronounce things as you would like speech synthetic speech varies as to its accuracy um, occasionally it will drop the final syllable or it, it can it can really um, misbehave and simply not represent things clearly uh, so without braille you're disconnected from the richness of spelling um, and the variance of spelling um, I'm involved in judging something at the moment and there are a lot of young people in, in coming up for awards and hardly any of these names are names that are familiar to me and I have to look at them and oh okay that's such and such a name I guess it's pronounced this way and it's spelt like this so I've got 135 names in this list and many of them are quite unfamiliar to me um, so I think that it, it isn't possible um, or isn't easy, it isn't easy to work in an environment um, without Braille. And I've been um, working for the last eight years self-employed, so I'm working with umpteen different um, organisations at different times doing different things. And even now, um, I have the privilege of working um, across the World Blind Union Asia Pacific region so I'm dealing with multiple languages um, and I have to be respectful of different cultures different languages I think in, in our region I suspect there's only two countries where English is the first language so I, I, I couldn't imagine doing what I do without looking at things with Braille uh, it's just not well I couldn't manage it um, that, and that may be something about me but I can't see how you can be connected to the detail of spelling um, and the other thing is that I tend to remember things by patterns so if the braille pattern looks a bit skew with um, that helps uh, cue me into the need to have a more careful look at the spelling at, at what it should be and um, and to work out is it a braille error is it a me error am I learning something new <laughs> yes it's interesting how some people seem to remember things better when it's under their fingertips and I suppose that could be the equivalent of having a photographic memory or something like that but it it does seem to me as well that if I read something in braille I'll retain more of what I'm reading it's, it's easy to drift off with speech isn't it oh absolutely I can kick something into go mode and lean back and, and then five minutes later say what that all about <laughs> um, so uh, it is very easy to drift off but 
I don't know whether it's my ageing process, but I've basically had Braille under my fingers since 1985. I no longer remember phone numbers. I can look at a phone number um, with my left hand and dial it with my right. And I can't... Um, I mean, I do remember some key phone numbers, but I, I just don't bother. You know, you've got better things to do with the Braille under your fingers. Um, and actually, I find it very difficult to dial a phone number listening to it with speech, really difficult. Um, and I suppose if I didn't have Braille, I would be compelled to get that right. And I do think it's remarkable that there are some people who are able to give very coherent speeches um, and you've got no way of recognising that they're actually being prompted by speech in themselves and they can change slides and do all sorts of things. That's, that's serious practice. Um, I don't need uh, that kind of serious practice. I have the gift of, of Braille literacy under my fingers. I tell you, what, one of the most extraordinary things I ever heard was somebody I interviewed last year who works for the ABC in Australia who actually reads news bulletins fluently, and I'm talking very fluently, by listening to eloquence and speaking it back. And it's one of the most remarkable things I've ever heard. It really, yes. yes. <laughs> well... And I can believe that's possible, Jonathan, absolutely yeah. possible. Um, and, and I have seen it done in conferences. Um, it's just that it, if you can read the Braille, you've got that much more um, reassurance under your fingers, really. Right. I remember in 1993 attending one of the earlier conferences where the concept of a unified English Braille code was discussed. And the idea wasn't only to unify the literary Braille code around the English-speaking world, but also to have a single code for all disciplines other than music. In that sense, then, shouldn't we describe UEB as having failed? No. Um, UEB, in terms of uh, English Braille, does offer the maths, and it also allows people to switch in and out of other codes. Um, in the United States, um, the option is for um, people to choose to use Nemeth if they wish. Um, and UEB has never um, prevented that. It's always been possible. And we made sure that we gave um, the Braille Authority of North America the code switch option uh, to switch in and out of Nemeth. I, I have no difficulty with that. I um, am sad, personally sad, that we have not um, achieved uh, unification in terms of the uh, math symbols. I have always thought that if the sighted world knew that we had, as I counted up as many as six different ways of, of presenting the equal sign once, um, if if the sighted world knew just how many um, variations on a theme of equal sign there is in the Braille code, they would think we were crazy. And it is particularly sad and difficult that um, the Braille world still hasn't got there. But you can't force people to think in certain ways. You can only provide the best possible code we can. And I think that UEB has done that. And I think over time... Um, it, it, it will um, help um, unify the maths codes and, and bring the maths codes um, under UEB. In fact, what we are seeing is other languages 
looking at the UEB maths and science symbols, the technical symbols in UEB, and saying, all right, we will use those technical symbols um, as a fundamental, and then we will um, work out what are the best symbols uh, for our particular language to manage the non-technical symbols in the language. Uh, so the technical symbols in UEB are being looked at by um, several different language groups right now um, and I think that's, that is a very good thing because as I say the notion of having multiple ways of representing an equal sign uh, does seem very counterintuitive um, so I wouldn't describe um, UEB as having failed I think that just as print is iterative uh, so the braille code will be iterative we had some great um, papers at the recent conference about research. By the way, all the papers will be are on are on the International Council on English Braille website iceb.org. They're all there, um, and shortly a um, the publication, the research publication, the Braille research publication that um, the National Federation of the Blind um, publishes. That publication will also be publishing this year's worth of papers and posters and so on. So there's plenty of opportunity, but we had some really thoughtful papers about research and the need for us to move forward with the Braille Code um, in ways that are absolutely grounded on research, not Mary Schnackenberg's opinion. Um, and I think that's very important. And I, and I see room in the future, absolutely room for um, further amendment to um, UEB grounded in solid research um, for the right reasons. But wasn't there a lot of data when all of this was being discussed from people steeped in the maths and sciences that showed that when you look at a number of equations, the, the number of cells that it took to describe that equation in UEB was significantly longer than Nemeth. And if, if that's the case, that seems like a serious regression and one wonders why amendments to UEB weren't made accordingly. The, um, the situation with respect to maths is um, still available for um, conversation and learning over time, but certainly with straightforward um, maths and when we're thinking about youngsters beginning at school, um, the initial phases for maths um, are, it's perfectly uh, readable, perfectly usable using UEB code. It's potentially more of a challenge at the higher math level, um, and and I'm thinking about college math. Um, and it is possible. The thing about higher math is that if you're smart enough to learn higher math, and you need to switch to Nemeth, then it's possible to switch to Nemeth. But in fact. We had um, a paper from a, a college, in fact, I think it's a master's student, a master's math student, um, who uses UEB math. So I think that it's not an area of my expertise, um, personal expertise, but I think the um, jury is out about how difficult it is to manage um, higher 
more sophisticated math and science equations using UEB as compared with NEMIS. I was really struck by talking with some people in developing countries when I was involved in this a little more and in the World Blind Union and hearing from those people who were saying, look, it's really tough for our students because we will take any second-hand maths and science text that we can and yet it does require our students to learn multiple maths codes because if we get a book, say, that, that uses North American Braille and Nemeth, well, that's that's one code. And then if we get another book from the UK or somewhere else, that's a different code. In that respect, unifying the codes and continuing to pursue that objective could have a massive effect on those who need it most. Yes. Um, what I'm not sure about is the degree to which... Um, books from um, Brailed in other countries are actually going into um, the developing countries in 2016. And the other uh, concern that I have is that our students in developing countries, just as students um, in developed countries, absolutely need access to their own school curriculum. And I think it's very important that we look at it from a production point of view as well, which is to make sure that we provide production facilities in the countries or provide support that uh, to those developing countries or indeed to any country to make sure that the students get their own curriculum material. Um, And in fact, uh, New Zealand and Australia have both done a lot of work with... um, the Pacific area to uh, support Pacific countries to make sure that their students have access to their own curriculum material in Braille. And I think that's a very important aspect of our work. Is that being done through the provision of local embosses in in each country or how's that being done? Well, it's a variety of of, um, options. Um, I'm aware of one of the uh, volunteer transcriber groups who is providing an awful lot of Braille Um, to one of the African countries, for example. So we've got a situation in Canada where Canada is providing support to Nigeria. It varies enormously around the world. Um, There are local braille embosses and uh, local setups. There are situations where uh, you can produce the um, original braille and just send the file for embossing somewhere. Um, so there's such a variety of, of choices and it really depends on the nature of the uh, financial assistance um, and aid in kind that's going to the, um, to the end user really. At first with UEB, I thought I would probably not switch to it for my local refreshable brown needs myself, just because of instinct. You know, I, I read a lot for this kind of work, for radio work, and I'm pretty fast at it, and I didn't really see the need to change. But I changed my mind about that because when I'm working with my iPhone, which, as you may know, has extraordinarily idiosyncratic Braille, and I'd like to come back to that, but but I do find that UEB is more reliable for back translation in particular. But we do still hear a lot from people who are upset about what they perceive to be an elite taking their contractions away. You know, the, the dot six in, the, the to, the by, the of, the, all that stuff. Why is that actually necessary to tamper with Braille in that way? Well, um, you did actually answer the question <laughs> yourself. It's about back translation, and it's actually about reducing the costs of production. Um, the 
and, and the need for transcriber intervention. We really have to have a code that is um, bidirectional and UEB, one of the requirements, there were two requirements actually, two uh, key requirements, tamper with it as little as possible and I think there are only nine um, uh, abbreviations that are completely disappeared. There's a really small number of abbreviations that have disappeared. Um, people think that it's terrible and when they first see it um, they're pretty unhappy about it but it's quite quick to get to the point where you're saying oh that's just a silly transcriber error. Um, it's really easy to switch to UEB. It takes a little while and if you're opposed to change, then you will oppose UEB, and that's the reality. But it is bi-directional. It does work very well. It has reduced the cost of production. The impact on, um, of UEB on straightforward maths and the production of straightforward maths has been major. Uh, the introduction of cleverer ways of producing tactile graphics um, uh, use of things like Corel Draw and Swell Paper, which admittedly has predated um, uh, UEB itself. But the increasing range of use of all of these production tools has meant that it's quicker and therefore cheaper to produce a lot of material in Braille today. And there will always be the need for hard copy Braille, um, particularly as it relates to tactile graphics but also as it relates to getting the sense of format and um, in a way that it's more difficult to get with a single line linear um, electronic braille display. So it'll be a while before we reach the holy grail of an inexpensive multi-line braille display. So they're coming along, they're getting there, but in the meantime there is a real powerful need for, um, uh, for hard copy braille, for tactile graphics, and UEB is, um, has enabled the integration of those things at a, at a more affordable price. I wonder whether ICEB or the Braille Authority of North America, where a lot of this action is taking place, have been able to establish any kind of contact with the mainstream developers who are now playing such an important role in our lives, and particularly looking at Apple and Android, the Braille back screen reader in android is pretty primitive and the apple braille support is idiosyncratic as i mentioned earlier particularly with braille input and the way that contractions are sort of expanded in odd ways depending on how you input text as more and more young people in particular are working with iphones and ipads especially in a classroom environment does the iceb have a view on that about how they've got to, manufacturers have got to lift their game if they want to play in this market? We absolutely do have a view, and we have written to them. Um, one of the challenges that as individuals um, and collectively we have to think about is that we can't tell anyone what to do. We can only persuade. We can only persuade and advocate. And so we have to continue to advocate and persuade. Uh, and we try. Um, ICEB is a volunteer organisation. Um, it doesn't have a huge amount of money. 
certainly we can't afford to bring any uh, legal cases against anybody. We can only persuade and we have to work collectively with um, uh, individual countries and their persuasive activities. Um, not one of us can do this on our own. So blind individuals, um, when we feel the energy, have to complain to Apple or Android. Um, blindness organisations are doing exactly that. Um, ICB, um, I'm not sure about letters to Android, but I do know that we have written to, to Apple. Um, and there indeed was one of the papers um, at ICEB talks about um, inaccuracy in um, electronic braille um, and the number of uh, translators uh, in screen readers and note takers that are not reliably um, accurately reflecting the code and the number of errors. So we're very aware of the number of errors um, and we will do everything, ICB I'm sure, will continue to do everything it can within its limited resources to advocate uh, because we need to get this right um, and we need to encourage the manufacturers to get this right and we need to have to keep advocating. Are there any other items of interest from the most recent conference in Baltimore, the, the General Assembly, that you'd want to highlight? Um, we... We had uh, um, papers about the intrinsic importance of research. Um, Dr. Engelbretson, Robert Engelbretson, um, who's responsible for the International Phonetics Alphabet, um, gave us the keynote address and strongly advocated for empirical research for the future of the Braille Code to improve reading and writing. We had a number of papers on implementation of UEB um, in the UK, in Canadian, in a Canadian school district um, in South Africa, and even learning about what it meant to introduce UEB in a Braille printing house and how to uh, change support the staff uh, in their learning curves. We had a paper about uh, Irish Braille and its connection, the Irish language Braille and its connection with UEB. There's um, another online course for teaching Braille um, in the UK. Uh, there's quite a lot of work going on about the uh, integration of UEB with Braille music. Um, and that, that's interesting. Uh, how will how will that or, or will it take place? How would that work? Well, it's about the the best way to present um, words, um, particularly um, in vocal music, mm. um, the, the best way of handling that, and and that's about the musicians dis discussing and debating what what will we do to avoid confusion with the actual um, music code itself. And uh, that's an area that I recommend you talk to somebody like um, Geordie Howell in Australia, who's in the chair of the ICEB Music Committee. Geordie um, is, has a very clear vision of what's happening internationally. And um, there is also need for quite separately from UEB, there's need for development of the Braille Music Code. Now that was recognised 20 years ago or more um, and there are parts of music not covered by the Music Code. That's quite separate from UEB itself. 
But the musicians that are a lot closer and with practical contact with the code are talking constructively about what's best, the best way of handling the intersection between UEB and music. And there's, um, I've, I've talked about the uh, problem of um, errors in translators and screen readers um, and, and the need to advocate to get that sorted out. The Canadians are preparing guidelines for how to automate uh, transcription of personal Braille. This is things like um, bills, telephone bills and so on, where you really need, for privacy reasons, you need to absolutely minimise human involvement, but you need to maximise the accuracy. You don't really want mm. to send out a bill um, that makes no sense at all. Um, and so the Canadians are coming up with um, uh, guidelines about how best to handle that. There's also the issue of um, uh, the, the standards of Braille transcribers. And uh, New Zealand put in a paper about um, a, a, an accreditation framework that the Braille Authority of New Zealand, Aotearoa Trust, has developed. Um, we had a number of presentations about tactile graphics. Um, and we're really very um, grateful, of course, to the National Federation of the Blind and the Braille Authority of North America who hosted the program, our, who hosted the Sixth General Assembly, the Braille, the Code Maintenance Committee, uh, for UEB is an absolutely ongoing committee that's discussing all sorts of things um, and I guess top of mind for a lot of people is the apostrophe right single quote issue um, but really if I look back um, I've been on the executive since 2004 and I must say that of course for me top of mind is is that ICEB is, uh, is that Unified English Braille is now used in the eight ICEB countries. There is still uh, the accommodation of Nemeth in the United States. We've, um, we've developed a paper about setting up a Braille authority and we've got our own bylaws and constitution which can act as a sort of a, a guideline model, if you like, that people can look at when they're setting up Braille authorities because if, if nothing else, the last, um, since 2004 and probably my entire lifetime, um, suggests to me that um, we will be advocating for literacy through Braille um, throughout our lives and we really need the next generation to understand that it's very important to maintain an active participation in ongoing literacy through Braille. You made a comment briefly that got me thinking about the way that indigenous languages are represented in Braille because obviously there's a much greater awareness, thank goodness, of the need to preserve those. How has New Zealand, for example, been handling that with Māori Braille, the indigenous people of New Zealand, and how is it handled generally? Fortunately, uh, as long ago as the mid-1960s, one of our proofreaders um, who is... Māori, sadly she has passed away but she worked with um, the Braille transcribers and they worked out what were they going to do, what would be the best way of handling things they basically came up with what is primarily an uncontracted or grade one code with 
one exception, and that's the exception that in New Zealand um, there is a uh, a diphthong WH, which is an F sound, and so we use the WH symbol for the letters WH, um, and then there is a macron, which is a horizontal bar above vowels that indicates that the vowel is lengthened. Uh, so they looked around and thought, I wonder what we'll do for this, and they chose the um, North American long vowel symbol, dots 456, which was being used in Latin scansion for um, those of us that learned <laughs> Latin scansion. Um, and, we, um, and so they were the uh, two uh, symbols. Now, of course, the punctuation is the same as um, the capitalisation uh, because in the mid-60s New Zealand opted to follow North American Braille and that's a different story um, and one day somebody's going to write the history of the, the differences between British and American Braille mm. and, and why, what caused those differences and, and there's a very simple, in my view, explanation for it that is not about criticising at all it's about acknowledging the way uh, countries have grown differently and I think that it's quite important to respect difference and acknowledge those differences and say, well, um, that's great. Now let's move on. What do we need today? Learn from our history so that we can keep building for a better future for our Braille users. Mary Schnakenberg, someone who is definitely in the arena and has made a difference in so many ways. Great to talk with her about the state of Braille today. I like to keep a gratitude journal, and if you've not tried this, it's a really good practice to get into, I find, because we're so bombarded by negativity, it's easy, I think, for human beings to dwell on things that aren't going so well and to get a bit obsessed by them. And so it's a good discipline to write things down for which we're grateful. And quite often I find myself in my gratitude journal writing about Braille because I just wonder how different my life would have been whether the jobs that I've done in my life that I've enjoyed so much would have been possible without that priceless gift that Louis Braille gave us. And that's it for this first full podcast edition of The Blind Side. Hope you like it, and if you do, hope you'll spread the word that the podcast exists. I would really appreciate that. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at mosin.org.